welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, Episode 13. My name's Christopher Luft, and I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie. On today's episode, we're going to be recounting some hacker history and telling the story of Sean Carpenter, a rogue cybersecurity defender who single-handedly identified a Chinese APT. It is a phenomenal story that exemplifies the grit and moral fortitude that the best defenders among us have. It was a late summer day, September 2003, when hundreds of computers shut down at 5600 Sand Lake Road, home to the Orlando, Florida branch of Lockheed Martin. For any organization, a major and unexpected IT shutdown would be a big deal, but there are few organizations on the planet for which it's a bigger deal than Lockheed Martin. Lockheed, if you're not already familiar, is the United States' most prolific defense contractor, and by some margin. For scale, consider the other top defense companies, Raytheon, Boeing, Northrop Grumman. According to a report from Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, in the year 2020, each of those companies made around 30 to $35 billion in revenue from arms sales. Lockheed? Almost double at $58 billion. Altogether, you couldn't find a company trafficking in more sophisticated technologies and more sensitive secrets for the U.S. military. So when things went wrong that September day, they immediately recruited an emergency response team from one of their subsidiaries, Sandia National Laboratories. That's how Sean Carpenter, a cybersecurity analyst and Navy veteran, ended up on the first possible flight out of Albuquerque to Orlando. What Carpenter and his colleagues discovered in Florida was remarkable, if not necessarily surprising. Due to the nature of their work, Lockheed is always one of the most secure organizations in the world. To penetrate their cyber defenses, you'd figure, takes a great amount of skill, resources, and effort. And indeed, laying inside their systems was a charcuterie board of maliciousness. A series of company files had been compressed, encrypted, and were waiting to be exfiltrated by an unauthorized user. A remote malware program was beaconing to a command and control server. All this had been mostly hidden by a rootkit, buried within the innermost levels of the system. It was a kind of comprehensive, well-organized attack that very few entities in the world are capable of pulling off. The Sandia team halted the exfiltration of files and cleaned out the system. Then they flew back home. That might have seemed like the end of the story at the time. Months later, though, an eerily similar cyber attack hit Sandia itself. Sandia 2 is an extremely sensitive U.S. defense partner, as their website states, quote, We apply advanced science and engineering to help our nation and allies detect, repel, defeat, or mitigate national security threats. Our national security mission has grown from responding to the threat of the Cold War to countering a range of threats, some nuclear, others involving chemical and biological weapons of mass destruction, and other acts of terrorism, end quote. It would have been enough that somebody had compromised the company that maintains the U.S. nuclear weapons systems. But at a certain point in his investigation, the analyst Carpenter compared what he'd discovered about Lockheed's and Sandia's breaches with a counterpart in Army cyber intelligence. 
That, according to Time magazine, is when he suspected just how much bigger this whole thing was. During the period of approximately 2003 to 2006, the United States government and military experienced a campaign of cyber intrusions the likes of which had never been seen before. There were compromises at a series of military bases, aerospace and weapons manufacturers, the FBI, and NASA. The Department of Defense discovered malicious Trojans on hundreds of their computers. According to an anonymous official who spoke with the Washington Post in late 2005, related attacks reached almost every high-stakes corner of the government, including the Department of State, Energy, and Homeland Security. Other governments and militaries were targeted too, in the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Consider one extreme example. In the early morning hours of November 2nd, 2004, when all of the following occurred. At 1.23 a.m. Eastern Time, attackers exploited software vulnerabilities to get into the U.S. Army Information Systems Engineering Command at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. At 4.19, attackers used the same vulnerabilities to breach computers at the Defense Information Systems Agency in Arlington, Virginia. 6.25 a.m., a compromise at the Naval Ocean Systems Center, a Defense Department station in San Diego. 7.46 a.m., U.S. Army Space and Strategic Defense Installation in Huntsville, Alabama. As a rule, the U.S. government and military doesn't keep classified information on Internet-facing computers, but that wouldn't have stopped hackers from stealing valuable and restricted information like data, schematics, and software. As one Pentagon spokesman told Time, quote, When we have a breach of our networks, it puts lives at stake. End quote. Indeed, among the stolen data were details of U.S. troop movements and body armor specs. So it was, for better or worse, like a serial killer calling card. All these cases shared similar characteristics, similar targets, methods, evidence, as if they were coming from just one source. In 2005, U.S. officials gave name to this campaign, Titan Rain. When a Time Magazine reporter visited Sean in his ranch-style home in Albuquerque in the summer of 2004, they seemed to grasp just how strange it was to watch one man attempt this. They wrote about a typical evening where, quote, He set his alarm for 2 a.m. Waking in the dark, he took a thermos of coffee and a pack of Nicorette gum to the cluster of computer terminals in his home office. As he had almost every night for the previous four months, he worked at his secret volunteer job until dawn. Not as Sean Carpenter, mid-level analyst, but as Spider-Man, the apt nickname his military intelligence handlers gave him. Tirelessly pursuing a group of suspected Chinese cyber spies all over the world. Inside the machines, on a mission he believed the U.S. government supported, he clung unseen to the walls of their chat rooms and servers, secretly recording every move the snooper made. End quote. It became a nightly ritual to wait for his wife to go to sleep, brew coffee, chew Nicorette gum, and go hacker hunting. Though, in reality, it probably didn't live up to the Hollywood chic ascribed to him by that reporter. Carpenter wasn't so much chasing the baddies like Spider-Man. Instead, he'd laid a trap. 
he'd gathered a trove of intelligence documents, real, genuine relics of the government military business, like you'd find in the IT systems of Lockheed Martin or Sandia National Laboratories. All of it happened to be declassified, though you wouldn't necessarily know that from first sight. And he'd created fake search histories and other such data that you might expect from a defense contractor, carelessly exposing themselves on the web. A lot of configuration was done to make it all look real, he told a New York reporter. He'd put his honeypot online and then waited as hacker after hacker started to flock in from all around the web. In the middle of the night, for months on end, he traced whoever showed up hoping to find the Titan Rain hackers on the other side. According to the New Yorker, it took 10 long months, mostly sleeping only a few hours a night, until, quote, he finally cracked the case. He followed the hackers to a server in South Korea, then used a brute force application that kept guessing at the server's password until it landed on the right one, allowing Carpenter to hack in. On the server, he found beacons and other tools, in addition to several gigabytes worth of stolen documents, the equivalent of millions of pages, relating to sensitive U.S. defense programs. Among them were blueprints and materials for two major Lockheed Martin projects, the F-22 Raptor, a stealth fighter plane commissioned by the Air Force, and the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which was launched by NASA in 2005. End quote. The South Korean servers were just a proxy, a front, an extra stop to throw someone like Carpenter off the scent. He followed the connection back further until its end point, in the Guangdong province of southeast China. Then, according to Time, quote, He carefully installed a homemade debugging code in the primary router software. It sent him an email alert at an anonymous Yahoo account every time the gang made a move on the net. Within two weeks, his Yahoo account was filled with almost 23,000 messages, one for each connection the Titan Rain router made in its quest for files. He estimates there were six to ten workstations behind each of the three routers staffed around the clock. End quote. He watched as the group performed more attacks just like the one against Lockheed, Sandia, and others. He observed them plant remote access malware and weasel into the most sensitive file systems within networks, zipping up and pilfering out everything they could to proxy servers in Southeast Asia, and then to Guangdong. All of this in half an hour's time, usually, or maybe just 10 minutes. Carpenter summed it up when he said, quote, Most hackers, if they actually get into a government network, get excited and make mistakes. Not these guys. They never hit a wrong key. Late at night, Alone in his house, Sean Carpenter had uncovered a Chinese nation-state-level APT behind the attacks on a slew of U.S. government and military organizations, but he had achieved that through illegal means. In 1986, the United States government passed the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which made the act of breaking and entering into any computer without proper authorization unlawful. This law applies even if said computer is overseas and, unfortunately, even if you're hacking for the right reasons. So Carpenter was in a tricky position, and not just him, but anybody who collaborated with him. In an interview with Computer World, he recalled first bringing his findings to his employer, quote, At the first meeting with my supervisor and the Sandia Information Security Manager, the supervisor stated, We don't care about any of this. We only care about Sandia computers. 
after I insisted that there must be a way to throw the information over the fence to Sandia's counterintelligence organization or the other federal and military authorities, he said that I was forbidden from doing this and that it wasn't my job. They were not willing to contact the proper authorities because outside law enforcement would certainly inquire about how the data was obtained, bringing unwelcome scrutiny upon Sandia. End quote. Carpenter disregarded these direct orders. Beginning in March of 2004, he covertly passed along his findings to contacts within the Army. By October, due to legal concerns, the Army passed him off to the FBI. After only two weeks, with similar concerns, they too ordered Carpenter to suspend his investigation until they received further authorization. Working with this rogue cyber analyst was, as everybody realized at one point or another, dangerous. But if you caught our last Hacker History episode, you'll have some idea of how little cybersecurity expertise there was in the FBI in the early 2000s. They actually had to hire a third-party cybersecurity professional because their technical knowledge was too limited to carry out their own plot. So you can understand why Sean Carpenter would have been so useful to them. Because of his expertise, and also because the FBI is a lawful institution, theoretically at least, well, he seemed perfectly willing to do the dirty work. Which might explain why, even after telling him to quit his investigation, the FBI continued to collaborate with Carpenter over the following four months, holding regular intelligence gatherings at his Albuquerque home. The collaboration was prolific. At peak, Carpenter's intel was feeding eight different active FBI investigations. You're very important to us, one agent told him. This could very well impact national security at the highest levels, said another. The special agent heading the investigation assured Carpenter just how essential he was, adding that, quote, we're not going to prosecute, end quote. But Carpenter's wife didn't believe them. To write off Jennifer Jacobs as simply, Sean Carpenter's wife, would be a gross injustice. Like Sean, she was military, a major in the Army Reserve. At the same time as he was, she was also employed at Sandia Labs, working on projects relating to nuclear counterproliferation and security for ports and borders. And one other quality she seemed to share with him was skepticism towards authority. Jacobs wasn't convinced by the FBI's kind words. She knew that in an instant, as soon as it suited them, they could turn on him. And so, the carpenters installed microphones around their home. When the FBI special agents came to visit, they were being recorded. An ironic twist, you'd have to say, to American citizens bugging the FBI. And they weren't entirely unwarranted in doing so. In late 2004, the FBI unilaterally informed Bruce Held, Sandia's head of counterintelligence, of their work with Carpenter. On January 7, 2005, Held invited Carpenter to a meeting with the company's management. From Carpenter's interview with Computer World, quote, a semicircle of management was positioned in chairs around me and Bruce Held, Sandia's chief of counterintelligence. Mr. Held arrived about five minutes late to the meeting and positioned his chair inches directly in front of mine. Mr. Held is a retired CIA officer who evidently ran paramilitary operations in Africa according to his deposition testimony. At one point, Mr. Held yelled, You're lucky you have such understanding management. If you work for me, I would decapitate you. There would at least be blood all over the office. During the entire meeting, the other managers just sat there and watched. At the conclusion of the meeting, Mr. Held said, 
Your wife works here, doesn't she? I might need to talk to her. In the context of that meeting, it was a chilling moment. Shortly after the meeting, which management described at trial as a fact-finding session with Mr. Carpenter, my director showed up at my office, escorted me to the gate, and stripped me of my badge. That was the last time I was ever at Sandia. On February 13, 2007, a New Mexico State District Court ruled on whether Sean Carpenter had been wrongfully terminated by Sandia Laboratories. Had Sean acted out of line? Was Sandia justified for having fired him since he went against his direct orders and performed illegal acts? According to a jury of his peers, the way in which Carpenter was fired was, quote, malicious, willful, reckless, wanton, fraudulent, or in bad faith, end quote. The jury forewoman chided Sandia's reckless behavior and their cavalier attitude about national security and global security. But one juror put it best, saying, quote, If they have an interest in protecting us, they certainly didn't show it with the way they handled Sean. End quote. Sean was awarded nearly $4.7 million in damages, more than double what his lawyers were even asking for. But a fairy tale ending this was not. The group behind Titan Rain was later identified as Unit 61398 of the Chinese People's Liberation Army. A decade after Sean Carpenter's investigation, the U.S. Justice Department indicted five officers of that unit, but by that time, according to estimates from FireEye, they'd already attacked over a thousand targets. In the meantime, a few years after the peak of the Titan Rain attacks, Chinese military APTs carried out Operation Aurora a campaign against Google, Adobe, Morgan Stanley, Dow Chemical, Northrop Grumman, and dozens of other high-profile American corporations. And in more recent years, Chinese APTs have been linked to campaigns against technology companies, airlines, military contractors, and government agencies, with some, like the 2017 Equifax breach, having nationwide implications for millions of people. Carpenter, whose investigation ended in 2005, could only watch on from a distance as Chinese cyber attackers ripped through America's military and economy, and law enforcement failed to act forcefully enough to stop it. I'm not sleeping well, he told Time magazine. I know the Titan Rain group is out there working. Now more than ever. This episode was written by Nathaniel Nelson, narrated by Christopher Luft, and produced by the team at Lima Charlie. Before we sign off, I just want to thank all of you for tuning in and supporting the show. The feedback we've been receiving has been invaluable to guiding the progress as we learn and grow in this medium. If you have any thoughts, ideas, or criticisms, we would love to hear them. You can send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show or tell a friend about us. It would mean a lot to the team that is putting this all together. Thanks again. And we'll see you on the next episode.